you would please open your Bibles to Genesis. Genesis chapter 28. Genesis 28, you should recall from the end of chapter 27 that when Rebekah was concerned that Esau was wanting to kill Jacob, she decided she needed to send him away, send Jacob away. And so at the end of chapter 27, She says to Jacob, verse 43, Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. When your brother's no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, I'll send word for you to come back from there. Why should I lose you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm disgusted with living with these Hittite women. If Jacob takes a wife from among the women of this land, From Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him and commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Padanaram, to the house of your mother's father, Bethuel. Take a wife for yourself from there, from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien, the land God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob on his way and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, who was the mother of Jacob and Esau. Now Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and had sent him to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that when he blessed him, he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and had gone to Padan Aram. Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac. So he went to Ishmael and married Mahalath, the sister of Neboeth, and daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham, in addition to the wives he already had. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you 
until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. I don't know how you feel about these people. I mean, we're getting to know them. And um, I'm, I'm finding it hard to like them a lot, okay? We're supposed to love everybody. That's God's command. We're even to love our enemies. But I'm, I'm grateful that God doesn't say we have to like our enemies. Um, because, I mean, God could enable us to do that too, but that would be even a bigger miracle than loving our enemies. Now, let me talk about that for a moment, because I think some of us mistakenly believe that to love someone means we approve of whatever they're up to, okay? Whatever they do, we're like, oh, okay, I see, well, you go, girl. Um, that's not what love is. If someone is doing something that is bad, a person who loves that person will not approve of that thing that they're doing that is wrong, still love that person, still care about that person, and precisely because we care about that person, we don't approve of their continued behavior. I've had the privilege of raising seven children. Um, mercifully, we spent most of that time right here at the ranch. Um, if instead we lived in suburbia and um, one of my children was out playing in a high-traffic street, it would not be loving toward my child to say, oh, well, it looks like he's having a good time. That would be irresponsible. That would be unloving. So when we see someone doing something wrong, not everyone is our child. But the more we care about them, the more honest we're going to be about whether or not what they're doing is okay. Does that make sense? If you care about someone, you don't suspend what God says. 1 Corinthians 13 
is known as the love chapter because it tells us what love is all about. And one of the things it says that is horribly overlooked in our day is love does not rejoice in evil, but rejoices with the truth. That is worth remembering when somebody you love wants you to celebrate with them something that God says is wrong. Something that God says is terrible. It is unloving for you, knowing the truth, to celebrate evil. Of course, that's just according to God. But don't forget, God is love. So, when I look at these folks, I don't necessarily like them, but I'll tell you another thing about that. One reason that they make me uncomfortable is because I see myself in them. Some of the stuff that bothers us most about other people tends to be that which, when we're honest, bothers us most about ourselves. We realize, that's me. When my wife and I have taught parenting conferences, one of the things that we tell the parents is that your children are like magnifying mirrors. You know what a magnifying mirror is? It's the kind that old people have in the bathroom, okay? Because as we age, our eyes tend to dim, and we look at ourselves and think, oh, that's reasonably okay. And then we get a magnifying mirror, and we look, and we see things that we can't see in a regular mirror. And it's like, oh, that needs attention, okay? I didn't realize there were azalea bushes growing out of my nostrils. Um, you know, I, it's just those kinds of things that, that you pick up on when you are able to see yourself up close. Your children will tend to be a magnified version of you. Your children, I'm going to say that again. Your children will tend to be a magnified mirror of you. And when you see that in your child, be careful. Because yes, children need correction. But often it needs to be coupled with repentance on the part of the parent, to realize, oh my word, they got that from me. I do that too, don't I? Now, looking at this passage, all the scheming and conniving on the part of Rebecca in order to try and accomplish her goals, can anybody relate to that? Anybody here sometimes manipulative and thinking, well, if I just come right out and say this, they might not go along with it. But if I approach it this way, then they'll, they'll buy in. That's just how most of us, at least a lot of the time, tend to approach relationships. It's not healthy. It's not healthy, but it's what's going on. She said to Isaac, I'm the one who put Jacob up to deceiving you. Now his brother wants to kill him, and I think it's best that he leave town for a while. Is that what she said? No. 
She said, I'm disgusted with living. I want to die because of these Hittite women. If Jacob takes a wife from among the women of this land, from Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. And so Isaac is like, well, okay. And he calls for Jacob, and he blessed him. He blessed him despite the fact that he knew Jacob had deceived him, lied to him. He blessed him and commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Padan Aram, to the house of your mother's father, Bethuel, and take a wife for yourself from there, from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. He's saying I ought to marry my cousin? Yeah. Okay? Now, if you do that over and over for generations, you end up with distorted weirdos like the royalty of Europe and me. Pastor, would you marry your cousin? No. Your parents did? No. But I want you to remember at all times, I am descended from European royalty. Okay. That drama going on right now with Harry and Meghan and William and Kate and Charles and, well, who is his wife today? Anyway, that was deliberate. Um, all, those are my cousins. You understand that? Those are my cousins. What a bunch of weirdos. Glad I didn't marry one of them. But he says, I want you to go and do that. And there was nothing immoral about that. And back in this day, there was not nearly the risk to the gene pool because the, the DNA was such that limited generations still populating and people married their relatives. In some states in the U.S., you can still marry your first cousin. In my family, we only allowed second cousins to marry. Oh, boy. So he says... Go to the house of your mother's father, Bethuel. Take a wife for yourself from there, from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And may God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien, the land God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob on his way. And he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, who was the mother of Jacob and Esau. Now, Esau learned about this exchange, and he realized, wow, mom and dad really don't like my wives. I better get another. Just, just a tip. You've heard this before. It's certainly not original with me. If you find yourself in a hole, stop digging, okay? There is no indication that Esau really dramatically improved uh, the household climate by bringing in another, uh, another wife, but, but that, was, that was what he decided to do. He went to Ishmael and married Mahalath, sister of Neboeth and daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham, 
in addition to the wives he already had. Jacob, meanwhile, has left Beersheba, sent out for Haran, and when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. It's reasonable. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. This tells us he was a side sleeper. Okay? Just, just so you know. Um, you know, if, if, just so you know. And so he's sleeping on the ground with his head on a rock, and um, he has a dream. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway, stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And there above it stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. And I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will be will spread and you will spread out to the west and to the east to the north and to the south all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring i am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and i will bring you back to this land i will not leave you until i've done what i've promised you that is absolutely amazing And it wasn't just a dream. It was a dream from God. God appeared to him in a dream, spoke to him in this dream, and made absolutely amazing promises. God promised to do for him what his father, Isaac, had prayed would happen for him. That he would indeed be the heir of the promise. And God says, I will do this. Jacob wakes up and thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He had stopped for the night because the sun had set. There wasn't a sign saying, stay here, great rates, okay? He's sleeping on the ground because he ran out of daylight. And now he realizes God is in this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. I want you to look back up in verse 15. God had told him in that dream, I'm with you and will watch over you wherever you go. There was a mindset in the peoples of that age, and it's still around today, that there was a God of this place, and 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 so you know, gods of the mountains, gods of the valleys, gods that give us crops, gods that get, change the weather, all kinds of gods. That notion of territorial gods 
was based on the fact, by the way, that demons are territorial. Okay? There's a network of spiritual beings. You read the book of Daniel. Look up the phrase Prince of Persia. There's, there's all the pagans who worship demons, which is what idolatry amounts to, are worshiping territorial gods. Sort of like Americans and their sport teams. Okay? You live here, you better be a part of this group. If you live here, you better be a part of that group. If you go somewhere else, you may still be loyal to the God that was over the area where you came from. But boy, I mean, the loyalty in this country on the level of sports teams is just nothing other than idolatrous. But I <clears throat> digress. There was an understanding on the part of those who knew God that he's everywhere. But there was still a temptation to think of God as being especially here. Now, God does <clears throat> manifest his presence in a special way in certain places of his choosing. So I don't want you to think that nothing is holy, nothing is set apart. God never says, I'm choosing this place where I will manifest my glory. God does do that. But from Genesis through Revelation, God makes it clear that he leads his people on a journey through this world in which we encounter him all along the way and find out if I descend into the depths, you are there. If I go up into the heights, you are there. I can't get away from your presence. God isn't just some places. He is everywhere. Now, if you're trying to run from God, that's a scary thought. But if you're trying to run to God, you need to recognize he's with you. He's with you. You don't have to be afraid. Well, what if I get in this situation? Folks, this afternoon my wife and I are driving to Atlanta and we're going to fly to Guatemala. We've never been to Guatemala before. I hope we're going to be okay. We're going to be fine. You know why? God is already in Guatemala. Oh, he went down there ahead of time. <clears throat> God is in Guatemala. God is in Ware's Valley. God's going to be with us in the car. God's going to be with us in Atlanta. God's going to be with us in the airplane. When we know him, the one who truly is God, then we recognize that, yes, certain places have significance. But our God is everywhere, and he rules over all. If you get in a spaceship, Get a ticket from Elon, Elon Musk. If you get in a spaceship and you go to Mars, will God still be back on Earth? Of course. So we'll be up there in a God-forsaken planet? No, God on Mars. He beat Elon Musk to Mars. Okay? The universe is his creation and he holds it together by the word of his power. So, God says, wherever you go, I'm going to be with you. Jacob, 
awaking, realizes this place is special. And so he does something. Early in the morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head, and he set it up as a pillar and poured some oil on top of it, and he called that place Bethel, which means the house of God. This is the house of God. That's what Bethel means. And Jacob made a vow to the God who is God. And he said, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, God had already said he was going to bring him back, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I've set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Now, Pastor Brian shared some wonderful study of this passage and comparing it to other passages in an email with me and uh, just encouraging me to look at, at these points. And I think he made a lot of excellent points that as he reads this, he sees Jacob as basically being offered something mind-blowing by God that Jacob did not feel worthy of. And that's why he, he says, look, I'll just be happy if you do this for me. And Pastor Brian may be exactly right that that is where Jacob's coming from. I've always tended to see Jacob a little more harshly. And the reason is because we all bring something of our own story to the passage. Okay? Pastor Brian reads this, and he looks back to when God had amazing mercy on him, despite the fact that he had known better and done wrong as a young man. And in repentance, he said, God, I don't know, I don't know why you would want me, but if you do, I'm yours. That's beautiful. Great testimony. I'm sure he'll share it with you sometime. It's a beautiful, powerful testimony. It's true. But I kind of take a different view of this because I see myself in this story too. And the me that I see is not a me that I like. It's a me who, despite God's promises, still wants to try and make a deal. Because I find it hard to trust his promise and just rest in the fact that God's word is true, he's going to do what he said, and I don't have anything to worry about. Instead, I want to say, okay, God, if you'll do this for me, and this for me, and this for me, and this for me, then, then we'll be close. Then I'll trust you. Then you'll be my God. And then I'll even, because you're my God, I'll, I'll give you the full tenth of, uh, of everything I've got. 
And of all that you give me, notice he does say that you give me. He knows where it all comes from. I hope you know that. Everything you have comes from God. Every breath you take, every IQ point you've got, every bit of artistic or musical talent or athletic ability, everything you've got comes from God and belongs to God. And the reason why Scripture encouraged folks, commanded folks, to give God a tenth was not because the tenth is what God owns. It's because everything is what God owns, and by giving a tenth, we are reminded of that. Understand? I don't give God a tenth, and then, okay, you got yours, I got mine. <laughs> Thanks. It's, it's all yours. Thank you for giving this to me. Help me to use it the way you want. I'm offering up this tenth right off the top. Now, you see, I see myself in this passage, and I don't like it. But I want you to see, if we look at ourselves in the passage and stop there, we're missing the point. We need to look at God. We need to look at the amazing grace of a God who would save Jacob. God will describe himself in the scriptures again and again as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why would you choose Jacob? God chose him before he was born. Paul makes much of this in the book of Romans. When he says, while they were still in the womb, before they'd done anything, good or bad, God said, Jacob is my choice. Why would he do that? Well, Esau, I mean, you know. <laughs> Esau was this hairy outdoorsman who just really, you know, didn't get it. He ends up with... <clears throat> Not a very good life. Because he despised his birthright. And so, God saw that coming. Chose Jacob, because Jacob is such a wonderful, godly man. No! This is a true statement and worthy of all acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners. The Apostle Paul adds of whom I am chief. If you think that God's going to love you if you do this, 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 then he'll love you. You haven't really believed the gospel. Christ came into the world to save sinners. That means we all qualify. God doesn't love you because you're good. God doesn't love you because you're smart. God doesn't love you because you're dumb. God loves you because God is love. He is merciful and gracious. And he came to save us. How amazing is that? 
And so when I see Jacob here, I think of various things in my life, just as Pastor Brian thinks of various things in his. I think of myself after I was a pastor, after I had led others to Christ, after I'd preached the gospel for years, and I'm driving home from the church, listening to the radio, and I hear a thing on there for Publishers Clearinghouse. And I thought, that would really help us in our building campaign. We need more money in our building campaign. And I said, God, I hadn't even entered yet, but I said, God, if you'll let me win Publishers Clearinghouse, I'll give you 50%. And the gist of what God said in response was, really? 50%? Wow! And I basically cried on the way home, thinking what an idiot I am. I'm trying to entice God that I'll give him half the winnings if he'll just throw the contest to me? I mean, how stupid could I be? God isn't saying, oh boy, what I could do with that much money. You understand? Yes, God sometimes says things sarcastically. Especially when he's talking to a sarcastic person like me. He speaks my language. God didn't need for me to win Publishers Clearinghouse in order for him to get some cash. God didn't need me. But he wanted me. And he wanted me to love him. Not so that he could love me back. He wanted me to love him because he already loved me. He loved me while I was still a sinner. He loved me, and he loves you. He does. He doesn't love you if you're good. He loves you. Jesus said to the rich young ruler who thought he was good, there's no one good except God. God's the only good one. The rest of us have all blown it. Every one of us. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. It's the only way we could be saved. And God provided it. And he provided it for you so that you could be forgiven and changed from the inside out. And so I implore you, recognize not just your own failures in this story, but recognize that the God who owns everything, to whom we should approach, not saying, if you do this, if you do this, we should approach God every day with a blank check, just saying, God, I'm, I'm yours. Whatever you want to do with me today, I'm yours. I'm all in. Have your way. Have your way. If you will do that, you will discover 
that this ladder to heaven with angels ascending and descending is a picture of Jesus. Jesus who provided the real gate to heaven, who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Trust him. He loves you. He loves you. Don't be afraid. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your love, for your mercy, for your grace. Help us to truly repent and believe the gospel. And we will give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.